Hello and welcome to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Baum. I'm here to share techniques and tools to help you engage with your audience and bring art, objects and ideas to life. So let's dive into this week's show. Hello and welcome back to the Art Engager podcast. I'm your host, Claire Bowne of Thinking Museum, and this is episode 93. So I have a very special guest today on the show. In case you don't know, Slow Art Day is coming up on the 15th of April, 2023. Slow Art Day is an annual event where participants worldwide are invited to look at and discuss art slowly. You can find out more about Slow Art Day in episode 46. And so in honour of this special event, I'm so happy to be talking to best-selling author, broadcaster, two-time TED speaker and voice of the slow movement, Carl Honoré. Now, before I speak to Carl, as always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by treating me to a cup of tea on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Claire Bown. I'll put a link in the show notes. And you can help this podcast reach more people by posting about it on your own social media accounts and by sharing, liking and commenting on my feeds too. Do recommend The Art Engager to all your friends. Thanks for the support. It helps to keep this show going. So let me introduce my guest this week. Carl Honoré is a best-selling author, broadcaster, speaker and advocate for the slow movement. He began his career as a journalist covering Europe and South America for publications such as The Economist and The Miami Herald. Carl's first book, In Praise of Slow, came out in 2004. This best-selling book explores the benefits of taking a slower approach to life, arguing that the super-speedy pace of modern life is damaging to our healths, relationships and the environment. This book popularised the concept of the slow movement. It challenged assumptions about productivity and had a lasting impact on the way people see modern life. Now, In Praise of Slow had a huge impact on me when I read it at the time, and it went on to significantly impact my first programme incorporating slow looking in the museum in 2011. Now, I've since reread it many times. It's been translated into 36 languages and it has inspired many people, including me, to rethink their relationship with time, work, leisure and technology. Carl's most recent and fourth book, Boulder, advocates against ageism. And Carl has appeared on various TV shows, presented a series on BBC Radio 4 called The Slow Coach. Carl lives in South London in the UK. Now, in our chat today, Carl shares his insights on the benefits of slowing down in every aspect of life. Our conversation centres around the slow movement and how this can rehumanise us in a culture that values speed above everything. We talk about the inspiration behind the book and how Carl decided that slow was going to be his thing. 
We discussed how In Praise of Slow continues to be widely read and discussed almost 20 years later and how its ideas have influenced a wide range of fields and industries. We talk about how Carl's work fits into a larger cultural conversation about resisting the pressures of a culture that values speed and productivity above all else, and what connections Carl sees between his ideas and those presented in books like Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks and Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. We also talk about how his own relationship with Slow has changed over the past 20 years and what new insights or perspectives he has gained over time. Then we go on to discuss the slow art movement and how it fits into the broader slow movement and how he's involved with it. We talk about art being an antidote to our fast-paced culture and three ways that art can play into slow. We talk about slow experiences in museums and how museums are finding ways to create slow environments and create programs to invite people to deeply engage with art. We talk about blockbuster exhibitions and labels and how they can help or hinder us in the experience we might have in a museum. And we talk about the importance of building the muscle to observe, contemplate and look deeply at art, especially in children. Finally, we discuss the general thread that runs through Carl's work and what he's working on for the future. He shares four ways that we can all incorporate the principles of slow more fully into our own lives. There's a lot to discover in our chat. We cover a range of topics from the benefits of slowing down to the role of art in creating a slower culture. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is. Hi, Carl. Welcome to the Art Engager podcast. Thank you, Claire. I'm thrilled to be here. So can you, for the benefit of our listeners all over the world, can you just explain where you are right now? Right now I'm sitting in my home in South London. That's a perfect way to start. Yeah. Uh, we also talked a little bit about the weather. I'm glad to hear the sun is shining in South London this morning. But perhaps you could start us off by giving us a short summary of what you do. Sure. Well, I'm a, an author, speaker and broadcaster and my two main themes, which do overlap, are that in a world addicted to speed, slowness is a superpower. And I guess in a world enthralled to youth, aging can also be a superpower. I love the way that you brought those in together. We're going to be talking about the idea of slow. We're going to be talking about your most recent work around positive aging. I'm going to start right back at the beginning. Huge fans on this podcast of slow. We talk a lot about slow looking, slow art. And I really want to talk first about your book from 2004. I can't believe it's almost 20 years, to be honest. But yeah, you wrote your first book in praise of slow. And I think this book really had a lasting impact. You know, it definitely popularized this, the idea of the slow movement. And it also challenged some ideas about the way we see modern life. I think the book is still widely read. I reread it and I've reread it a few times since it first came out. So perhaps you could start by explaining why you wrote the book and how you decided that slow was going to be your thing. Well, I've discovered over the years that 
all of my books start from a personal existential crisis of some kind. <laughs> and that is very much the case within Praise of Slow. So if we rewind the clock now, yeah, 20 years, I was just stuck in fast forward. So every moment of my day was a race against the clock. And I realized that I'd just forgotten completely how to slow down when I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And so I'd go into his room at the end of the day and speed read Snow White. So I'd, I'd be skipping lines, paragraphs. I became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn technique, but it just never works, right? My son would always catch me out and he'd say, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story? You know, what happened to Grumpy? And, and this really lamentable state of affairs went on for some time until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White in 60 Seconds. And I remember thinking, oh, hallelujah, what a great idea. I need that book now, Amazon drone delivery. But then the second thought came over me. It was like a light bulb over the head moment. I suddenly thought, well, what are you doing? Are you really in such a hurry? You're prepared to fall off your little boy with a soundbite instead of a story at the end of the day. And it was like, a, like an out-of-body experience. Something I could see myself in sharp relief. And what I saw there was, it was just ugly. It was unedifying. It was, it was, it, it was just wrong. I was, I was racing through my life instead of actually living it. And that's when I realized that I had, I'd lost my compass. I just lost my way and that I needed to slow down. So I, as a journalist at the time, I wanted to understand not only my own addiction to speed, but the bigger picture. So I traveled around the world to investigate this cult of speed and hurry. And I came back with good news, which is that then, and even more so now, wherever you go these days, more and more people are doing the unthinkable. They're actually slowing down in every walk of life. And they're discovering that contrary to what conventional wisdom always tells us, which is that if you slow down, you're boring, lazy, unproductive, unhappy, your roadkill, <laughs> that the opposite turns out to be true, that by slowing down judiciously at the right moments, people find that they eat better, raise their children better, make love better, think better, work better, that they live better. And, and this, and I guess in some ways, in Praise of Slow, as you said in the introduction, became the handbook, if you like, for the slow movement. Because when I first started kicking the idea around, nobody really talked about a slow movement. I guess there was slow food and slow cities and a couple of disparate movements and initiatives floating around in the ether. But I guess what I proposed at the time of that book was maybe there's an overarching larger theme here, which is the idea of slow that could apply to every field of human endeavor. And so I guess in that book, I was really asking a question, could there be such a thing as a slow movement? And spoiler alert, it turns out there was or there is, there certainly is now. And, and, and talk about the book being relevant today. I mean, we're sitting here at the beginning of April, 2023. And a couple of days ago, In Praise of Slow sold to a Slovakian publisher. So it'll be coming out in Slovakian, which will be language 36. So, you know, 19 years after publication, people are translating it into new languages and reading it again. And I think the dial has moved, the tectonic plates have shifted, especially I think since the pandemic and the very idea of slowing down is much more at the center of our culture and our conversation than it was four years ago or five years ago even. Yeah, what do you see as the most significant changes or developments that have occurred since its publication? Obviously, it's nearly 20 years. Do you think people are more on board with the idea of being slow? Do they feel the benefits or see the benefits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from my own vantage point, when I first published that book, I felt like a 
lone voice in the wilderness a little bit, you know, kind of a, a, a prophet wandering in from the desert. And, and, and I don't feel like that way now. I mean, I mean, because of the work I did then and still do now, I'm near the center of this wheel at the hub. And so people tell me, I, I hear what's going on and it's just extraordinary to me. I mean, every day I open up my inbox and there'll be a new university program built around slow or a company doing something. You know, there's just so many things happening in every activity and every walk of life. And it's much more permissible than it was now to slow down and to, to be out and loud and proud about it. In fact, I'm just thinking and remembering now as we spool back through the years, that, that was the word that really struck me when people reacted to the book when it first came out was they said to me, thank you for giving me permission to slow down. And I remember thinking at the time, what an extraordinary idea that people would feel the need for permission to slow their lives down, to live them better, but they would need it from somebody that they'd never met before. And then, of course, over time, I realized that that is exactly what people do need, because we live in a society marinated in the cult of speed. It's just we're constantly pelted with the same message, which is that faster is better and that slowing down is a form of failure. And so it's very hard. I mean, we're social animals. We're affected by what the people around us do, say, think, and how they behave. So if everyone else is putting up a faster-than-thou vibe, it's hard for us, even if we can feel in our bones that slowing down would be good for us, even if we're yearning to put on the brakes, we still don't do it because the, the taboo against slowness runs so deep. It is so synonymous with bad things that people need permission, and that's the first step. But I think now looking back over the span of these last two decades, the permission is there. And it's not just coming from me and my book. Now people are finding it everywhere. You can't pick up a newspaper these days or look at a website, news website, and not find a country or a nation running an experiment in a four-day work week, right? You know, this is so many things happening, right, at a really seismic level that point in the same direction, which is moving away from the idea that faster is always the best policy. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to when I read your book and it stays in my mind with another book complete. It was called Fast Food Nation, which came out, I think, a couple of years after your book. But those two books of that era really stuck in my mind. And thinking about it recently, thinking about all the things that have happened in the last few years. And also, I've read some books recently. I read Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Mm. I've read Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks, you know, all these books that are giving us an alternative, a reaction against this grind culture that we've been a part of, this obsession with productivity. So, yeah, how do you see your, your work fitting into this larger conversation about resisting these pressures of culture that really values this speed above everything else? Well, I, I think it's very revealing that most of those books will cite in praise of slow, usually somewhere, if not in the, in the text itself, somewhere in the bibliography, because they're, I mean, I felt like when Praise the Slow came out, there wasn't any book that was quite like it. I mean, at all that I can think of. And yet now there's a whole library of books and you've just yeah. mentioned a couple of them there that are all spinning off the idea of slowing down or reinventing and reimagining our relationship with time. I mean, I think of speed and hurry as dehumanizing and that slowing down slowness rehumanizes us. And that's been a big underlying theme across all of our cultures, I think, in the last few years, particularly, we're seeing it even more acutely now with the sudden rise of artificial intelligence, that there's a real feeling that modern life and its obsessions and idiosyncrasies and pressures and 
and, and obsessions, there's something dehumanizing about it. That there's very little space left for the small, the intimate, the messy, the slow, the human. The culture has become so driven by that Silicon Valley aesthetic of frictionlessness, right? We've got to remove friction from every interaction. Everything must be smooth and fast and scalable and globalized. So therefore, it's the same. We rub out the wrinkles that set one human being apart from another, like one product apart from another, so they can move more quickly across borders. And, and I think we've lost a lot of humanity in that equation. And slowness, I think, is a very useful and powerful lens for rethinking what we want from our lives and what we want from wor the world and what we want from science and how it's going to reshape the way we move through the world and so on. So I, I feel like in Fraser's Slow is, and people often talk of it as a founding text for the slow movement or for a lot of these other books that have come since and are still coming out or these days at a rate of naught, telling us how to think about time and use time in a more human and humane way. So yeah, I guess in some ways it feels like I got there first in a weird sort of way. And yeah, I've written four books now, four books for adults. I've just written my first children's book, actually. It's the journey, which is about slow travel. But the four adult books, I sort of, I sort of wonder as a writer, if you maybe get, you're lucky if you get one book that has had the impact that Impraise of Slow has. I mean, it's just, like I say, it's like now it's as of this week, now up to 36 languages. And it just, it just, it, you know, it's on university syllabuses from the business school to medical colleges to arts foundation degree, you know, it just, it just seems to get into every nook and cranny of the way people challenge the status quo. You know, it's a useful lever, slow with a capital S. So yeah, it's, it's kind of weird and overwhelming and kind of gratifying to have written that book as well as that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think your own relationship with slowness has changed in the past 20 years? I wouldn't say it's changed. It's evolved. I'd say it's deepened. I mean, one of my real fears of when I sat down to write in praise of slow was that I would come up with a book that made sense on paper, was coherent as an idea and an argument, and that worked for some people but didn't do anything for me. Because because I was kind of, in a way, I look back now and I realize I was just writing it as a form of extended therapy, right? I, I was a card-carrying roadrunner. The virus of hurry was coursing through my veins. I needed to slow down. And so I, I wrote that book to slow myself down. And it worked. You know, I came up the other end, an altered figure, right? I mean, and I look now and think about how I live my life and how I approach each moment. And I do do it in a slow way. So... A lot of people look at my life from the outside and will say, well, hang on, that doesn't look very slow at all, right? You know, you do lots of things, you're very active. But what really matters is what I feel. And I used to feel in the bad old days and my, you know, before and after, my before, I used to feel rushed. I genuinely felt rushed all the time. I mean, I had such a neurotic, unhealthy relationship with the clock. I was always looking at the time and thinking, well, they've got two minutes left. What can I do with this? Or what did I do with the last five minutes? Was that productive enough? And it just was a vortex of, superficiality and hail chasing. And I was a, a genuinely a headless chicken. And now I'm not, right? I mean, I get a lot done. I have a lot of fun. But I genuinely do not feel rushed anymore. I mean, it's quite it's quite a feat, really, when you think what I was like before. And, it, and in some ways, it's not just about me. Well, in many ways, it's not just about me, right? Because I, I stand here as exhibit A, right? I have proof that a type A fully signed up member of the cult of speed 
can turn it around 180 degrees and be someone who still lives in, thrives in, and loves the modern world, right? And I've got an iPhone, I'm on social media, I travel, I play fast sports like ice hockey. I love speed, but I don't feel rushed anymore, right? And there's a kind of gentle magic in that. I think that's because that's what slow is all about. It's not about becoming a Dalai Lama and meditating nine hours a day. I mean, that's one version of slow. Another version of slow is to toss the iPhone and live in a bothy and grow organic carrots. And that's wonderful for some people. That's not going to be a workable, viable way of being for most people, right? The way forward is to take slow as a, as a kind of mindset, if you like, you know, a way of arriving at each moment and thinking to yourself, how can I not get through this moment as fast as possible? and squeeze as much into it as possible. But how can I make the most of this moment? How can I fire up all my senses and get the most out of this next hour rather than thinking, how can I squeeze as much as possible in, right? Just kind of flipping that switch and how that's utterly revolutionary in for all of us in every moment. Yeah, and I think that brings me really nicely onto slow art. You mentioned slow art briefly in, in Praise of Slow. You talk about the perspective of artists creating art more slowly, but also people making art to slow down. And I think in, in recent years, particularly in the last 10 years since I've been working in this area, slow looking has come a lot more into the foreground, you know, creating deeper, more meaningful museum programs as an antidote to the kind of the highlights tour, the rushed experience of the museum. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the slow art movement and how it fits into the, the wider slow movement? How are you involved? Yeah. Well, there are many people playing around with slow in the art space. And really, it's thinking about art as a lever that we can pull, a way of a lens we can bring to the world that helps us slow down. So I think of art as playing into slow in three ways. One is how we make it. So the actual act of making art, I think, if you make it, properly with a slow spirit can be very slowing, right? Because it's about all those things that aren't frictionless, right? The making of art has is all about friction. It's all about collisions and small mistakes and then pivoting and going down a rabbit hole and hitting a dead end and then coming back. That, to me, there's a majesty and a magic and a music and all of that that's about the making of art. Then there's the consuming of art. I spoke earlier about how a fast-forward culture, a roadrunner culture is is dehumanizing. I think that art rehumanizes us because it slows us down. Art invites you to, to pause, to contemplate, to look hard, to stare, to think, to stop and stare, to see the big picture, to join the dots, to, to fire up your senses, to do all those things that get crowded out when it's all about rushing from A to B as fast as possible. So art, use the word antidote, to to the speed culture. That's a word I often use for art as well. I think it's, I mean, it's there for all of us, right? We all have an artistic sensibility. We all have an instinct as human beings to create in some form or other. So I, I think there are many ways that we can tackle and take down the speedaholic industrial complex, but I think art is one of the most powerful allies we have in that battle. And so I think, and you do see museums, I think, becoming more and more attuned what art can do, trying to find ways to move away from the fast food approach to serving up art to people, you know, to creating more slow environments, slow programs. Well, slow art day is, is one example, of course, a standout example where you invite people to simply go and, and engage deeply and meaningfully and slowly with one work of art, maybe, or two works instead of 
rushing through and trying to see everything in the museum or the space in one go. So I feel like art can art can save us, right? And and I'm thrilled that more and more of these initiatives are yeah. happening. And I think, well, definitely since I've been working in this area, I remember when 2010, 2011 first, you know, trying to introduce some of these concepts into museums, it was quite radical, even 10, 11, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. I created a, a museum program that asked kids as young as six to spend 10, 15 minutes with an object or an artwork. And teachers were not convinced that their kids could do it. Adults weren't convinced that they could spend that amount of time with an artwork. So what's been really lovely for me to see is how much more mainstream this has become, how much more a part of the way we visit museums that this has become, and that it's not something that is perhaps just once a year or is just perhaps certain museum programs, a one-off program that they might do, that this is much more about an alternative way to visit museums. So how do you think that museums and other cultural institutions can be more welcoming for visitors who want to take a slower approach to art. Well, I, I think one is to have many more programs like the the ones you're putting out there to because I think not just for children, I think for adults, it, when w- those muscles that we're born with that allow us to look hard, to think, to be fully in the moment, those muscles for many of us have atrophied. And so it's not enough just to say to people, slowing down being with an object for 10 or 15 minutes, contemplating, observing, seeing all the nuances, building a relationship with an object over a, a period of time will be good for you. That's not enough. We've lost the the instinct, the reflex to do that. So I think we need, certainly for the beginning, we need structures, we need programs, we need someone like you to sit there and say, okay, let's just sit in this room here together. Here's one object, and I'm going to walk you through some tips and hacks to do that. And then those muscles will come back, especially for children, because they're hardwired to look, right? I mean, that's how children interact. That's how throughout human histories, children have spent time with objects, you know, with tactile beings of the physical world, feeling things and learning about the world and their place in it through a deep dive with physical objects around them. And so the first step, I think, is to create more and more of these programs to get those muscles fired up again. And then once the muscles are going and we've more and more of us have relearn the lost art of looking, really looking, then it gets easier because then people can go on their own steam to museums and and bring that spirit with them. But I think at the same time, museums, galleries could rethink the fabric and the layout. So I was very lucky recently to be at a private view of the Vermeer exhibition in the Rice Museum in Amsterdam. And it was a three-hour event and an hour and a half in, almost everybody else left. So it meant that I was almost there alone with these some of the greatest paintings in the Western canon, which was just an incredibly lucky moment. But what it made me realize was the way they had laid out the exhibition invited slowness because many of the paintings were alone in one room. So you had one painting in one room and then there was no one else there. So that's, of course, brings its own, opens up more possibility to slow down because I think when we're around other people, who someone else walks up to a painting or a sculpture and looks at it for 30 well, maybe 12 seconds and walks off, we get affected by their hurry and they start to think, well, why do I keep myself here looking for longer? You don't have that when there's no one else around. So I think one thing that exhibition spaces could think about, two things. One would be to have fewer works per square foot, right? You know, have some works or some place where you just have one object in one room. I think that would be immensely powerful. And then 
and this is tricky because of course you want on one side you want as many people going through and being exposed to art as possible but you also want i think to have fewer people there so that the experience of the people who go is more rounded and intense and textured and nuanced and deep right so there's got to be a sweet spot in there I mean, we've all been to those blockbuster exhibitions where you're just on an assembly line of visitors. I know that there's economic reasons to have all those people, but yeah, maybe there's a way to, maybe there's some sweet spots that could be hit, you know, less is more, right? Finding the right number of people. And then maybe extending hours so that you, you have certain times a day when it's a free-for-all and anyone can come in. And then you have an hour in the evening for slow looking where you, every evening, you only let a certain number of people in and only have a certain number of works available and people are just funneled towards a slow experience with a small number of works. I mean, I'm sort of just thinking off the top of my head here, but I, you know, people who run those institutions, they get, to, they know that they're there, they're there because they love art and they understand its power and they know that its power is opened up by slowness. So this can happen, right? This can happen. There are ways to make it slower and better. Absolutely. And I think bringing in that Vermeer exhibition as an example is a really good example of a blockbuster exhibition that actually got quite a few things right and did encourage that slowness. Vermeer being a wonderful example in slow looking anywhere, his paintings just exhibit that feeling of stillness and slowness. Mm. But you could feel that in that exhibition. And I went as a normal museum visitor and I was quite concerned about how busy it might be and how much looking I would actually be able to do. But as you say, the way that that exhibition was laid out, the thoughtful approach that the exhibition designers and the curators had taken to that exhibition actually helped that to become a less speedy, mm -hmm. stressful, fast experience. It could have been the opposite. And I've certainly been in quite a few blockbuster exhibitions that have been very different. So, yeah, there are things that we can do to, to help visitors to slow down, even just looking at the space itself, as you say, having fewer artworks to look at. There's, I don't know if you've been to the Manchester Art Gallery, but they have a whole space, a whole gallery, which just has one or two paintings in it. And then they position armchairs and sofas in front of them so that you can spend the time to sit down and really get to know these artworks. So there are initiatives out there. And it would be lovely to see more of these in, in museums going forward as well. We were talking there about the Vermeer exhibition. One thing that really struck me that I think also fits into this same groove was that there was very little text by each painting. And that can see the argument that could be a double-edged sword. So people who don't know that much background of Vermeer could find themselves adrift. But the flip side, I think, the upside is that it means you're forced to unpack the work yourself, right? So it's inviting you to use your antennae, to use your common sense, to open up to the work, to make it sense, rather than going for the low-hanging fruit, which is someone else's interpretation, which you read, think, look at the work quickly, and think, yeah, I can see that, and then move on, right? The Vermeer, just because there was so little text, you had to do some of the heavy lifting yourself. And, yeah. and that brings its own joys, doesn't it? Because you've done the lifting, you get to the other side, you think, wow, I I understood that painting on my own terms, right? And But it took time, <laughs> but you didn't have the distraction 
and the, the easy giveaway of a long text. So there's something else to think about there as well. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because if you've not got the label there, then you are forced to to spend the time with the artwork itself rather than reading the text about it, which, as you say, is just one perspective, it, you know, and there are so many other perspectives to take into account. So, yeah, lots of great ideas there. I want to move on a little bit. I'm Wanted to mention your book, The Slow Fix, which kind of came in between in praise of slow and before your most recent work. You talk about taking a slower approach to problem solving, you know, as opposed to sort of rushing to quick fixes. So how do you think that this concept of slow can be applied to other areas of our life? We've talked about art, we've talked about museums, but if we go beyond that, so what are the benefits of taking a slower, more thoughtful approach? to solving problems. I think we live in a quick fix culture where we're always looking for speedy solution, right? We don't want to sit with a problem because this is how you solve problems really is to sit with them in the same way as you sit with a work of art to unfurl and unfold it and get to the core, get to the heart of the matter. We're always looking to take out the symptoms rather than the root cause with problems. And and a slow way of saying it is to is to take down the hurry, to, to invest the time and attention, to understand the problem from all angles, and then to be playful a little bit, you know, to take your time to play around with the possibility of different solutions and then to, and then to test them out. So there's that all of that takes time, but of course it saves time in the long run. <laughs> this is the, the glorious, delicious paradox of slow in every walk of life, especially problem solving, is that it it actually often ends up being faster than the fast approach, right? Because what always happens with a quick fix is that we, we get it out the door now, we think, yeah, we've dealt with that. And then a little later, the quick fix blows up in our face and we've got to spend a whole much more time and money putting it right the second time or the third time. The slow fix approach is to invest that time and attention and energy and resources at the start to get the right solution the first time, you know? So you, you take a little bit more time up front, you slow things down. And then you save yourself a whole lot of hassle later on. So I guess some of the elements of the slow fix would be, well, simply just taking the time to, to let your mind wander, to see the problem as a work of art. You would see a work of art to see it from every angle, to go away from it and come back, you know, so that you see it with fresh eyes, a different perspective, to bring other people into the equation to help you see things, you know, the, the power of the crowd, crowdsourcing or teamwork and collaboration, you know, helping us rotate the world so we see it and its problems from different angles. Also, just I mentioned the word play there as well. I think to have a playful approach to anything is helpful, right? We so many things that we achieve and learn and enjoy as human beings come through play, right? We're, we're, we're animals of, 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 of play. And solving problems is very much a part of that. That's why if you look at the gaming world, right, which is all about play, it's all about solving problems. And it's because it's marshalling and tapping that deep human instinct for play. Play as a glorious act on its own terms for its own sake, but also sometimes as a very useful tool for interacting with the world and solving problems. And of course, play, again, is one of those things that's slow. You can't you can't speed up play. You can't say to a child or, a, or an adult, play faster, right? Or have fun faster. It doesn't work like that. Play only becomes play when we back off, slow down, and let it spool at its own rhythm and its own tempo. So, yeah. So those are some of the ways of thinking about problem solving with a, a slow lens. Nice. Yeah. And I'm looking at your most recent work, and I'm thinking 
about all the connections between your books. And for me, concept of time is a factor that comes up time and time again, <laughs> and how you adopt perhaps a more attentional, a more mindful approach to life. You know, in, in Praise of Slow, you're telling us that we need to slow down to to appreciate the richness of life. And in your most recent book, Boulder, you're encouraging us to embrace aging and to make the most of the time that we have. So yeah, how do these two books fit together? Yeah, it's funny. When I first sat down to write Boulder, I, I didn't think of many connections with slow. And then of course, as I began digging deeper into it, I realized that there were some overlaps and there's a, a big Venn diagram in my working thinking life that you've identified there. I think time is the center circle, right? Where all these things intersect. So when you think about aging, one of the things that happens to most of us as we get older is that we slow down physically, right? We don't have the, I mean, even elite athletes by the time they're in their 30s don't have the explosive speed that they did in their early 20s, right? So we, we physically, we tend to slow down. And in a world that prizes and worships speed, that slowing down looks like a form of failure, looks like a punishment or a disease even, right? So that I think explains part of the cult of youth is that we just abhor any kind of slowness. And so if we're having to slow down a little bit in some ways in later life, that looks like a form of failure to us, right? But of course, the flip side of the discussion about slow is that slowing down, if you do it right, brings a whole banquet of riches, right? To our understanding and our engagement with the world. And that's something that you do notice as well across all socioeconomic groups, and cultures is that as people get into the second half of life, we tend to get better at being in the moment, at focusing on one thing at a time. We get often a little bit more patient. Our social acumen and social smarts improve. We get better at forging deeper relationships with people. All these things are tied up with slowing down, right? These are all benefits of slow. And there are things that are, are there for all of us at all ages, but there's a little superpower angle as you get into the second half of your life, right? That that's just the way we tilt as human beings, that that's the way we evolve. We tend to get better at some of those things that are slow. So, you know, you think of the Silicon Valley mantra, move fast and break things, right? And that can be useful to have some people in a company that have that spirit, but you also need to have some people who will tend to be older, more experienced people who can say, hang on a minute here, is it worth moving fast at this moment? And is this something really that we should be breaking, right? You need that mix of people, right? So I guess my take on aging now is completely different from what it was before. I mean, I, I was definitely a signed up member to the cult of youth. And now I'm not. Now, now I see aging as a, well, it's a privilege, isn't it? And the alternative is pretty grim. But, but also I see so many of the benefits now, which I don't think I was open to before. I was too tied up with the idea that, Aging was somehow a downward spiral in every way, when in fact, it's just not. There's some, I mean, we do lose some things as we grow older, but the truth is that many things stay the same and some even get better. <laughs> and, and once you sort of open yourself up to that more nuanced view of the great graceful arc of life, right? I'll tell you what, my favorite metaphor for aging now is is gaming. And I'm not, I've mentioned gaming twice. I'm not actually a gamer at all, <laughs> but, but, the, but I think of aging now as a, as a, as a series of levels. So in a game, you go from level to level. So I'm 55 years old now. So that means I'm at level 55. So during this level, I will make the most of being in level 55. I'll go out and get all the treasure you can get here. I will gather the most amazing swords. I don't know, the morning star, whatever it is, you know, and I'll, I'll, get, I'll ferret out and, 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 and 
enjoy every single adventure in level 55. And sometimes during level 55, I will look back and think, man, back in level 29, I did this and that was a lot of fun, but I won't want to go back to level 29 because I've made it all the way to level 55. And actually what I'm looking forward to is level 56. I'm thinking, what's waiting for me in level 56? What will be the different kind of treasure I will unearth there? What new adventures are lying in wait? And that, I think that's the spirit I think I wanted to have for myself and suggest for other people to think about aging as, as an adventure, right? That you're moving through these different chapters, these different levels, and each one brings its own smorgasbord of, of shimmering possibilities, right? If you embrace it as a process of opening doors instead of closing them, then everything stretches out before you to the yeah. horizon. Oh, it's a, it's a lovely analogy, thinking about it as a different levels that we might achieve or go through as we as we go through life and think about what, what was the next level that I can achieve. Some great tips there on really thinking about, you know, how to, to, to embrace positive aging. Is there, yeah, are there kind of any new projects or initiatives that you're excited about? What's What's next for you in terms of your writing and speaking on the slow movement and positive aging? Is there anything new that you're working on that you're excited uh, about? Yeah, gosh, there's so many things that are happening at the moment. I mean, I'm very excited about art as it happens. So the Tiempo de Arte, this slow art thing in Spain is really going from strength to strength. So I'm digging deeper into that. I'm doing some work, which could turn into a TV series, looking at our attitudes to aging and longevity and so on. So that could be very exciting. And I'm also playing around with writing a new book. I'm tempted to write a book about rituals and why we've always had them and why they're important and why they're powerful and why we need them now in this time of upheaval and uncertainty why, and disunity, why we need them now more than ever. And there's something about rituals, I realize, too, that's all about repetition and time and, and fixing us in time and space and slowness. So that, although I didn't go into the rituals thing thinking at all, this is another thing to do with slower time. I'm now, as I dig into the research, I'm realizing that it's it's just going to fit into my Venn diagram of time, contemplating time. So, yeah, those are some of the things that I'm, I'm toying around with at the moment. Brilliant. I can see exactly how that would fit into your existing body of work mm -hmm. and extend it even further. So uh, I'd love to see that come out in the future. So finally, would you offer any advice to anyone listening about incorporating slowness into their lives, regardless of their age or the circumstances? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I've got some quick tips for slowing down. <laughs> the first one is just simply is do less, right? We are chronically trying to do way too much. So I, I would recommend that everybody look at what they're trying to squeeze into their calendar every day for the next week and just pick the least important thing and drop it. Just simply drop it. We are always trying to squeeze things into our daily routines that are not that important, right? There's almost always something that can go. So just let it drop. It reminds me of that quote from Warren Buffett, the legendary investor who said once, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything, right? So my book is called In Praise of Slow, could very easily be called In Praise of No. So get that no vibe <laughs> out there going, you know, streamline, focus on what's really important, do, do less. Do one thing at a time, right? Multitasking is a myth, it doesn't work. Monotask, one thing at a time wherever possible. Second tip, turn off your phone. A really simple thing, use the off button, carve out moments when you're not moving at the speed of software and you're not distracted by TikTok and you are just 
in the physical world moving at a human pace. A third tip is to incorporate some kind of slow ritual. There are rituals coming back in, and that'll be different for everybody, right? It could be, I don't know, knitting or reading poetry or sketching something, doing something art, crafty, yep. something that just vaccinates you against the virus of hurry and just build that into your day. It doesn't have to be four hours. It can be five minutes, you know, just something that will slow things down, work as a break on you. And, and then a final thought is get out into nature, right? Being in green space, we know is the ultimate soothing pill, right? For taking down stress, slowing us down. So, and you don't have to go way into the wilderness and walk in a forest. I mean, that's great if you can, but even just being in a park, right? Or if you're in a city, go sit under a tree. Just being around green slows us down in a really good way. So there, there are some starting tips for, for everybody to reconnect with their inner tortoise. <laughs> Absolutely. Some great tips there. Thank you so much, Carl, for coming on the podcast, for sharing your wisdom, for talking about In Praise of Slow and the Slow Movement and your recent work with Positive Aging. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It has been a pleasure chatting with you, Claire. Thank you very much. So a huge thank you to Carl for being on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Go to the show notes to find out more about Carl's work and do follow Carl on social media. And before you go, next week, I have another special guest for you. So make sure you follow the show to be the first to hear about who I'm talking to. And if you want to get more slow looking into your life and make it a regular practice, join us in the Slow Looking Club. We have regular themes and slow looking get togethers. It's absolutely free. And I've put a link in the show notes so you can come and join us. Now that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Bowne. You can find more art engagement resources by visiting my website, thinkingmuseum.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at Thinking Museum, where I regularly share tips and tools on how to bring art to life and engage your audience. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with others and subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.